Are you, are you recording right now? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Then I will explain. Um, yeah, I just wrote this today because I saw someone sitting in the car outside my house. It made me start thinking about the election uh, a little bit into it. And, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. You can pass it away afterwards if you want. <clears throat> it's called Random Fella. Outside my house You're just sitting in your car Quietly creeping me out You think no one's watching But everyone is watching you Random fella, why did you get out of your car And go to your trunk? Don't you get that your actions are suspicious Man, this sucks on the corner you put an open house sign And I realized how much of this time I thought the worst of you Buddy, what's your life like? What's been happening? Is there a lot of strife or are you happy? I decided a lot about you and that says a lot about me Renabella, why are you at this rally? Why do you wear that Trump hat and shirt so proudly? Can't you see the racist? The xenophobia and misogyny Renabella, why support this bad billionaire business hack? When you lost your job and your friends all now live in shacks But the Democrats in cities are silent He's the one saying he'll get your jobs back What's your life like? What's been happening? Is there a lot of strife or are you happy? I decided a lot about you and that says a lot about me. The dirty DNC stole the primary we got another corporate shill instead of a Bernie. And with all that said, I shouldn't be shocked who got the presidency. But the irony that lost on me, Trump's not good for a country. But this is what happens when you are Stop listening We must hear the voice of the working class And not lose our empathy Thank you. Yeah, this weird thought where I was writing that song and I was 
about this dude outside my house, and then I was like, man, it's so easy to assume things about people, and it is also easy to realize you're doing that on a really small scale. Then I, and then I thought about how it's kind of harder when there's political division involved and other factors. It, like, when it's on a broader scale, it's harder to give the, the, the same human element some time and thought. Because I think that that's a big part of what happened this election. And it's really easy for me to be like, oh, I was judging that guy partially because I'm, I was being weird and lying in front of my house. But also, it's easy to do that on a big scale, too. You mentioned that a theme in the song was to think about how you're judging others uh, without really knowing them. And I think in your song you pointed out how that's kind of going on on both sides when it comes comes to Republicans and Democrats. How Democrats have kind of forgotten about rural folks and and the... That have been hit the hardest by globalization and all that. Yeah, and they, well, at least they certainly don't feel supported by the, the Democratic Party. If this is any yeah. sign, and uh, yeah, the the Senate elections and the presidential elections. Well, I mean, the Democrats do just write them off. Well, I, I was reading a thing about is from somebody who worked on the Hillary campaign in Philadelphia on the ground, and they only knocked on doors of likely Democratic voters. So they only hit the cities. Nobody went to any of the rural areas, which is partially why they didn't realize the turnout mm-hmm. for Trump, because they didn't even try to even talk to people. That And I haven't done a lot of door-to-door knocking, but when I have done that, I definitely need to do it this year um, for Hillary. I think uh, the recall election, maybe? I don't know, it doesn't matter. Um, but we've done that before. That's exactly what they've done is you go out to people who are likely to vote for you and you don't even like try and engage with the other side. And I don't know if Republicans do that, too. I'm guessing that's a probably pretty common thing. I think that's the standard way to organize now. And if, you know what? I'm not sure about this, but I wouldn't be surprised if it has a lot to do with maintaining your volunteers. I mean, how many people are you going to get to volunteer to go door to door trying to get people to vote for Hillary Clinton when you know you're in an area where 90% are going to vote for Trump, for example. Like, people are not going to volunteer to do that. Maybe not for Hillary Clinton, but for other candidates. Uh, like, I bet if maybe. it was Bernie Sanders, you would get people lining up out the door who would have gone maybe. to but the I, rural areas. But the point is that they were writing them off as 90% not right. likely to vote, and, and that Getting to that point where the environment is such that you can see these lo- like large swaths of rural people who aren't for sure aren't going to vote for you kind of is a signal that they are not the labor party that they might have been in the past. You know? Do you guys think that the third parties are were a, had an effect on the election this year? So I'm going to say one. I was bitched at by some liberal friends when I said I voted for Jill Stein, because it's my fault Trump's elected, apparently. But I'm going to say, one, it's bullshit, uh, but for a couple reasons. I think I think to a certain extent that the third parties sort of canceled each other out, in a way. And that is that, you know, okay, Jill Stein pulled some votes from Hillary Clinton, I guess. But, um, I almost said Ron Johnson. Um, Gary Johnson pulled a bunch of votes away from otherwise would have been Trump. 
So even if you're like, okay, Jill Stein took away just barely enough to give Hillary the win in Wisconsin, well, guess what? Gary Johnson, you know, maybe if she was less of a thing, less people would have voted for Gary Johnson and more would have voted for Trump. And I think a lot of people did also go vote for Trump who were going to do that. So I think it, on the face of it, it's, I, I think, yeah, I guess technically I sort of pulled away. But it really irritates me when people frame it like the, oh, well, you voted for Jill Stein, therefore you voted for Donald Trump. Because talk about like how important it is to vote because of democracy. But I'm being told it's important to vote because democracy and your voice matters. But only if you vote for the one single candidate I'm okay with. So basically, your choice is to not have a choice if you want democracy to exist in the way that I want it to exist. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. No, I, I get what you're saying. I actually, full disclo- I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. Full disclosure, though, I ended up going a different way. I thought I was going to vote Jill Stein for this election. I voted green the last two elections, both Obama elections I have voted green. And the last Democrat I voted for for president was John Kerry. Uh, but this year, I was planning to vote for Jill Stein, Green Party, uh, up until the day before. And this might be, uh, you know, a non-logical emotional reaction, but I, I don't know, I feel like when you're voting, emotional reactions are, can also be legitimate. And this is what happened. I was discussing the election with a co-worker who happened to be uh, a lifelong Republican coming from a line of Republicans. And she was not very happy with Trump. She didn't like Trump. So she didn't know who she was going to vote for, Trump or Hillary. Uh, and, and at first she just said, I don't know who I'm going to vote for. And I assumed that she was going either Trump Johnson or Hillary Stein. Because those are the two, everyone that I know who didn't know who they were going to vote for, that was the decision they were trying to make. Nobody that I was talking to, and and this is probably my own little bubble, right? Like, because there were people that crossed party lines, mm-hmm. but I didn't know any of them. The people that I knew were all their major candidate that they normally align with, or the third party one if they didn't like their major candidate. So it was a little interesting to talk to her. But what she said to me was that she didn't want to vote for Hillary Clinton because she thought that some of some of the nations that America views as maybe enemies or closest to that are not respectful of women. And so she thought that that would be a bad thing if we had a woman leader and, say, I don't know, Iran didn't respect a woman leader, and that would could be a problem in uh, international policy. That kind of offended me. I, I, that made me really mad, because I thought your argument is because other countries are sexist, that we should be sexist too, to cater to those other countries that you acknowledge are not friends of the U.S.? Like, just, and and I'm skeptical of the whole idea of who's a friend of the U.S. and not anyway, but just let, let's take that as a given for the assumption, because most people do go for those. Like, it just, it, it was mind-boggling and, and uh, confusing and infuriating to me. So it made me so mad I had to go vote for Hillary Clinton. So I did. Uh, not because I was super excited about her, but because I was kind of... I thought it was ridiculous that someone would not vote for her for the reason that, that was given there. And so I, I had to react to that, and I ended up voting for Hillary Clinton. Okay. Yeah. 
So as somebody who normally votes green, who broke my standard and voted for the Democratic Party in this case, when I was watching the PBS election coverage on election night, they had a major strategist for the Democratic Party on there, and as it became clear that Hillary was going to lose, now it didn't it took a couple of states. She had to lose a, like two or three states that they thought she was going to win before like it kind of like everyone in the room kind of like picked up on the fact, oh my God, Hillary's going to lose tonight. But as soon as that realization set in, this this guy from the Democratic Party started blaming the third parties, and I thought, dude, you know, like. You, you maybe could have made that argument in, you know, I, I'm not super sensitive to that argument because I have a lot of sympathy for third parties. I mean, I think it, you know, sometimes it's strategically dangerous to vote for a third party, but you have to do it unless you always want to have the same two parties. So I, I have a lot of sympathy for voting third party anyway, but you, and you could have made that argument maybe in, in the 2000 election with Bush and Gore, but I just don't think he can make that argument for this election. Gary Johnson got way more of the vote than Jill Stein. And the people that I know that were voting for Johnson, they were Republicans that basically thought Trump was too racist or too moderate, honestly. Like, so there's both people. To speak to that aspect, like what you're saying that you, voting for a third party ends up, uh, it can end up being strategically dangerous, like you mentioned. But it is important, idealistically, especially if you if you don't want this to be a two-party system. My response, and I would say to you, Tony, that it's not fair for people to say that you caused it or to direct anger at you, although it's it's I, I can kind of see where they come from if they're just like angry about the results and they want someone to blame. But it's not fair. Uh, but there also is an aspect that in or the way the the voting system set up right now, in order for this to work, if at this level, just with the voting system we have now, people idealistically around the country would have to change. Because right now, what happens is they say, "Okay, Trump or Hillary is going to win," so I need to vote on one of those two, and that's because we just we have the first past post system. You have one vote out there, and it, it stands alone, um, and it is whoever gets the 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 uh, majority of the electoral votes. I think that knowing human nature. A better way than trying to convince an ideological shift in the country is to change the framework with which we vote. I'm I'm big for all sorts of voting reform, from making it a holiday, um, from making it easier to register and easier to vote, from all these different things. But one of the main things is just how our vote ends up counting. I don't like the Electoral College for a lot of reasons, but right now, when when I, I think in the areas you guys were in, it was pretty safe that our county, at least, would go to Hillary. And in my mind, it's like, well, what, whatever. But, you know, th- th- it did end up being going the other way in our state, in Wisconsin. Yep. But I feel like... Yeah, even though it was supposedly safe during yeah. all the predictions, too. That was part of why I was planning to vote Stein yep. the entire way up. Yep. And and part and that makes sense to me, too, because you, you still get that number out there. And even in our system that, that really squashes third parties, you can relatively look from election to election and knowing that that stays the same, you can see when third parties do better, and it's usually because the candidates have uh, much more uh, likability problems, and Trump and Hillary both had that in spades. Mm-hmm. But yeah, until that happens, until until we have some old other voting system that would empower your vote, make it okay for you to vote for a third party um, without voting, you know, without that going away. So there, there's, there's other possibilities 
where, um, you know, if nobody gets the majority vote, then the party with the least amount of votes, they can transfer their vote. So single transferable vote is one option. Um, and I don't, so you, that way you could vote for Jill Stein and then Jill Stein votes every time could go to where she wants them to go. Or yeah. there's also ways for you to rate your votes or something like that. Different democracies have different thing, things in place. But just until we get past that pure mathematical point, you're always going to have this stupid bottleneck of these two parties. And, and that sucks. It, we, two things have to change. Either the whole country has to decide that they want a third party, yep. which is really unlikely, knowing human nature, or I mean, it's we change how it works. It might happen with the Democrats, too. Yeah, that's, they, that's a good point. Like, jumping topic slightly. Well, I'll stay on this one for a little Well, hold on. It hasn't yeah. happened in the modern era, though. Yeah. No. And, that, and that's, I time. think, because both parties realize how great it is to have it this be this way. Yeah. They promote that hugely, and that's one of the reasons I think they very rarely bring up anything counter-capitalism. I mean, Bernie was it was scary, I think, to the DNC for that reason. Yep. Because look at what they... I mean, they, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, they've been starting to mirror each other more and more since I've been politically active and or, or, or aware. I'm not that active, to be honest. But, like, seeing them, they're, they're not as different as they used to be. And Bernie would be, represent something totally, totally shaking that up. Yeah, and I, I think... Uh, I've seen people put say put November, you know, November ninth, two thousand sixteen, on the Democrats' tombstone. And honestly, I I I am one just a big fan of creating just a different socialist and or labor party for socialists. Uh, but you know, I, I'll take a labor party as well. Um, but boy, like if you look at, I think the the key indicators to whether or not they might sometime be salvageable in the far, far future will be the DNC chair. Because for the Senate Minority Leader, there was a push to get Bernie to be the Senate Minority Leader, who would have done a really good job as opposition, but they went with Chuck Schumer. <laughs> because, you know, why not have somebody who's exactly what everybody like dislikes about the Democrats uh, as in charge. Um, it's like they've learned nothing from this. Right, and that's where it's going to be the DNC chair is going to be a key thing, although I think that's more of a symbolic thing when it's not election time. But there's Keith, I don't think his last name wrong, Ellingston? Ellingston? Uh, oh, I know who you're talking about. In uh, Minnesota. The, the really, he's probably my favorite Democrat. He might, I might even like him a little bit more than Bernie. Um, he's the first Muslim to serve in Congress. Um, and they, they're basically, it's him versus Howard Dean for that, and I think the end of March is when they will decide that, or by the end of March it will be decided. But boy, if it's Howard Dean, just yeah, okay. they're not gonna. They well, they basically haven't learned anything because they're not. Uh, they're just blaming everyone else. Like they're blaming third parties. They're blaming Bernie Sanders. I saw people blaming Bernie Sanders because he didn't drop out of the primaries early enough. See, yeah, in response I'm, to this, I think a big part... So you mentioned your bubble before, you, uh-huh. you know, not knowing anybody personally who was really oscillating between Trump and Hillary on that level. Yep. And I, I certainly see this bubble, and it became more pronounced, I think, with this election, because I, on, after Election Day on Facebook, I, I saw people just saying, oh, great, I got to delete a bunch of friends on Facebook based on this. I'm like, so we're just insulating ourselves more. And one of the real... I didn't think I had, I was in that bubble, because I, I still have a few Facebook, so Facebook will promote friends' posts based on, like, how often you click on them or like them and stuff, yep. and I sometimes will 
linger or leave a comment or go like go into someone's profile who's a conservative relation like friend or um, uh-huh. family member because I think that algorithm will keep them coming. And I had a couple of them throughout the election, uh-huh. which is a long freaking time, and it was hard <laughs> at some points because sometimes you really do want to get into it. But I wanted to see at least a little bit of what they were saying, uh-huh. and it was kind of helpful. But mostly, I was like. I was still in this impression, like, oh, the majority of my feed, everyone is realizes how bad Trump would be for this country. Yep. I discounted him back when he was advocating, like, breaking the Geneva Convention and killing terrorist families. Like, he dropped out of the race so early for me. Um, but it, So I felt that way. And then uh, after he was elected, I went on to the site, his site, and, and they talk about the promises for his first hundred days. Mm-hmm. This was out there prior to the election. Um and there was stuff on there that I just had never heard him talk about. There were so many things that discounted him for me uh, that I, I never really paid attention. It, very early on, he, especially in the primaries for the Republican National Convention, he was he had no real solid platform anyway, so I discounted yeah, him. Right. But he had this prior to the election, and he was saying these things at his rallies. It just didn't make it to my Daily Show clips. It didn't make it to uh, John Oliver. And he, uh, one of the big things in that in those promises was bringing back a bunch of jobs from coal mines uh-huh. and like shale and hugely destructive stuff for our environment, of course, and things that long-term won't be sustainable. And especially because we've already put a bunch of time and energy into alternative resources. But I had that never crossed into my zone. I was totally unaware of this huge contingent of people that, that wanted that message so much, so much. And, mm-hmm. and now maybe they'll just get worse. I don't know with so, the social media bubble. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Social media, that's why I stopped using Facebook because of the thing you're talking about. Because I was just seeing the same thing from the same few people. Like, it was so bad. I would see things from the same people just like five days ago, what they said, instead of showing me something new. So I mostly just given up on Facebook. It was real self-affirming of the narrative that I wanted, especially as we got closer to the election and, and things like 538 was just saying, it looked like it was going to be a landslide. So likely Hillary would win. Um, and I just realized how much I can buy into that, especially because a lot of the critique I have of Republicans throughout my life and people who like just constantly vote Republican is wanting to dismiss um, anything that doesn't fit within the narrative. Because I think Fox News really capitalized on that sort of sort of uh, structure for stories. Right. Like, just focus on things, either give misinformation or just focus on details that support the, the people who are already watching. Mm-hmm. I was doing that. I was doing that. I didn't realize it. Fine. But I'm sure most of the people who watch Fox News don't realize it either. And there you go. I Yeah, it's something we have to think about and a bridge we have to cross now. You know, I think th- there's a lot of made about the people that came out and voted for Trump who were not excited to vote for anyone in the past, may not have ever voted in a presidential election in the past. To me, one of the things that that says is, look, the Democrats, and this is not news that, that really to anyone, probably, hopefully it's not, but the Democrats basically gave up on any semblance of being a party of the working class for, you know, a long time ago and kind of mainly done that in name. Like, they've basically been just a smidge better than Republicans for maybe the middle class uh, more so than than otherwise, right? right? Like, this, like, they were against the Bush tax cuts, but not not that much against them, right? Like, right. Obama we, renewed them. Right? Like, we, we like, the the, there was the top level um, income tax rate went from like 35 to 39 
You know, like, that's not the same as, like, FDR putting it up to whatever, 90-something, 97%, something like that. The, you know, the, you know, there's been basic general agreement on that. And so what I think has kind of happened is what the, the parties each represent two, they, they both have a, a dual platform now. And they both have a section of industry that they support, and they both have a section of, uh, culture war that they support. And so what the Democrats do to get their money is they go to finance capital, banks, uh, you know, investment companies, high tech, things like that. And the Republicans go to manufacture and building and construction and, uh, you know, fossil fuels and that kind of stuff. So there's the industries that they represent. And then the Republicans go for culturally anything that's culturally rural, right? So if, if you live rurally, what a gun means to you is, you know, a fun activity that you can do and you can go hunting and blah, blah, blah. If you live in the cities, what a gun means to you is the thing that people shoot each other with. You know, like that that's one of the major topics of discussion between the two parties because that's a good cultural difference between the way they've divided up the country culturally. But they basically keep any economic issues for the people kind of off the table, barely talking about them. That was one of the big differences with Bernie was that he actually talked about them. And it was a big difference with Trump. Yeah. Because saying I'm going to bring those jobs back was talking to the economic interests of those folks, sure. which is something that neither party had done because they kind of gave up on it. They said, you know what, the, you know, as long as we talk about guns and maybe some abortion and maybe some Christianity stuff, we can satisfy all of the people. And and the and the Democrats did the same thing kind of on the other side, right? As long as we talk about pro-choice and gay marriage and blah, 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 yeah, blah. Yeah, socially they do differ, for sure. Right? But yeah, not the other side. Yeah, but they've kind of given up. They said, you know what, let's keep economics off the table for middle and working class people. And, you know, focus on that for the rich people. So they, you know, kind of duke it out as far as industry goes. I saw some really interesting graphs after the election about investments and how they did, like, investments in the renewable and clean energies, mm-hmm. like, plummeted after Trump got elected. Mm-hmm. Fossil fuels went way up. Arms okay. dealers went way up because they presume, presumably will sell more arms to other foreign countries and so forth. You know, the it was it was really interesting to me. It represented a kind of uh, reminder that the parties stand as much, if not more, for competing sectors of capitalism rather than yeah. for competing vote blocks. Yeah, and it is funny to think of Trump and Bernie being two sides of the same coin, but in this in this sense, in this moment in our history, they really were, and that. It was weird for me to hear that initially, and, but when you start to think about it, that it, it really does become apparent, like you said, that they, they're both speaking to the same people who have not been listened to or don't feel like they've been supported by either of the, the main parties. And when people were saying uh, later on, when, when after the, the, um, the DNC and, and Hillary got the um, nomination, it was, we were talking about how well Bernie would do against Trump, and people would... People would say, oh, no, Republicans would never have voted for Bernie. And I also think staunch Republican people who are older and lived through the Cold War 
hearing a, a scene an old Jewish socialist, it might have put them off. And I think that a good amount of real uh, like people that vote the Republican ticket every time, yeah, they wouldn't have. But a bunch of these people that voted for Trump, I think would have. I think there are people who voted for Trump that voted for Obama or never voted. And I think that there are a lot of them out there who would have, that would have appealed to them, especially considering how distasteful Trump is. Like, taking the package of Trump means you're swallowing a jagged pill. And a lot of them are doing it, especially because Hillary was not that likable. Even that difference would have made a big difference. But yeah, Bernie would have appealed in a way that Hillary never could have. Well, if your world is kind of burning, right? And and it, if you live in a lot of rural communities, that's that's kind of the case, right? Like oh, yeah. all of the all of the jobs are gone. Every like this, it's a bleak situation. I had no idea that the recession in most like very populated urban areas had had recovered, and not all of them, of course, uh-huh. but in the rural communities of the country, they had not not yeah. rebounded in nearly the same way. And I yeah. I had no idea that that economic. Uh, decrepancy was there and had been there for a long time i mean it i think it does make sense because you know if if you look at the cost of transport now it's it's quite cheap and the ability to automate jobs and things like that you know it's like the we're i think the human race is only going to get better at replacing humans and if you look at the jobs that are predicted to be replaced more likely going to be the manufacturing and the you know the stuff that tends to be in those rural areas that you know the whole idea of bringing these jobs back first of all if it's been outsourced to somebody that does it for 17 cents an hour in a third world country you're not bringing that job back like that's a nice thing to say and 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 it is something that i mean you the, could tear up the shit out of stuff and i don't know yeah, really ruin it's your not gonna matter yeah and and here's the other thing is a lot of those jobs, yeah, were outsourced, but a lot of them were just automated, right? Like in in a lot of factories these days, it doesn't take that many people to run them. Yeah. Like it's it's sort of like how politicians used to. You don't see this very much anymore, but like even not that long ago, right? Like during, I remember during the Gore Bush election, which is the first election I ever paid attention to. I had no idea what a what Republican or Democrat even meant or was or you know I barely knew it was a political party back then. But I remember watching my first couple of presidential debates, and there was these big debates between Gore and Bush about what the farm subsidy should be for, and all this stuff about farming. And it's like, like one percent of the nation is involved in farming in some way or another. Three percent max, right? Like. Almost nobody is a farmer anymore because it's basically automated. It doesn't, like, with tractors, you get rid of tons of people that you used to need. Now there's a lot of self-driving tractors. There's just a dude that sits in the, in the, the, the driver's seat in case something goes wrong. Like, yeah. And, and you can see these, like, they're kind of cool videos to watch some of this, like, these farm, uh, tools. Actually, this is really interesting. One of, my uh, family members, who's kind of a Trump guy, loves to post videos of farm uh, machines that just do things that it used to take people to do. And I'm like, dude, you you kind of get it. Like, you post in these videos of machines all the time, and you get that it doesn't take people to do them anymore. And you'll do them for, like, industrial machines, too. Like, yeah. oh, this road-building machine, and this bridge-building machine, and everything like that. Yeah. And it's like, dude, you 
the jobs can't come back when what used to take like 2,000 dudes to do, you now can do with one dude driving a machine. What's like, most frustrating about that too is that you, if there wasn't this ideological framework in place that meant that we could not possibly give something to provide anything to people uh, as far as goods or services without them working in the same way that we're used to for the last 300 years, really the last probably 10,000 years. We, it's funny because if you, okay, think about that situation in a fantasy world where you have 100 people in a village and 92 of them have to work on making food all the time. And then some guy comes in and he has a magical portal and he says, this will get you food for everyone. In fact, you'll make more food than this village even needs. You can sell it, you can give it to other villages, and only two guys need to work this portal, this wand here that creates this food. You would think, oh great, these people can live on easy street. They, they don't have to worry about that food anymore. They can focus on other endeavors. But really what's happened is that 95, so not, now 93 people don't have a job because of the, this magical mm-hmm. wand. And everyone in the village is saying, what are you going to do now if you want this food? We have more food. We yeah, have more, yeah, we are the able to produce more. That got in on the, the two yeah. guys that got in on that portal, they are the rulers of that town now. Ooh, they're rich <laughs> and, they, and they get to make all this money and they have all the food. And they're saying, what are you going to do for it? What are you going to do? And they can bring back little jobs and say, go rake this field, at, at, because that's what we used to do, even though we don't need you to, or even though, like, that's the thing with the coal mining and stuff, we don't need to go that route anymore. Yeah. I Well, one, the coal mining stuff, like, that's not even economical. Like, yeah. Even if you wanted to bring those jobs back, it was booming, and then it disappeared because there's just, they didn't, the OPEC never cut their oil supply like they normally do. There's a glut. It's just simply not economical to bring those back. But I was literally this morning reading an article for some Silicon Valley idiot who was going, oh, well, no, no, all this automation isn't going to bring about a guaranteed basic income. We don't need free lunches around here. There will be an industry that comes about. And, like, this is something I hear in my econ classes. Oh, no. Uh, Actually, literally, we were just talking about Marx, talking about the uh, surplus, or the reserve army of surplus population. Um, he said, oh, well, that doesn't really happen because, you know, oh, there's another industry. They're, they're just somewhere else that can go, which historically has been somewhat true. But the idea that when you just automate so many things that there's be another industry, or yeah. even that that's desirable. This change is unprecedented, based yeah. on it, for sure. Well, well, the other thing is when, when you're talking about Marx's concept of the reserve army of labor, the... To say that new industries get created, that's true, but it doesn't mean that there is not a reserve army of labor. You know, when we have 3% unemployment, we, we call that full employment. Five now. Right? Or five, or whatever, right? Like, it's not that there is not a reserve army of labor, that we've just redefined what, we've taken the word full and redefined it to Oh, an acceptable level, which, you know, the, is its own thing. But the, clearly the the whole framework that Marx meant there is in full deployment. It's, it applies even when we call ourselves at full employment, even when we have no unemployment, quote-unquote. Yeah. yeah. That's the way they do a lot of stuff like that. I always think that's kind of interesting. Yeah, just define it out of existence. Yep. I was just going to say, like, I, I get it on a level where, where you talk about, like, a basic living income or something like that, living wage. I get how disruptive that is to 
what we've learned. What we've talked about already is how entrenched, like baked into this country is being part of, for a lot of people, Democrats or Republicans. And I do think that's going to hopefully change in, in, in the coming decades. But I, I can see that there's, a, there's different movements going on. And I think both the parties are divided in interesting ways right now. Um, not fun ways, <laughs> in the kind of scary ways, but maybe interesting. But I get how weird that sounds because of how we've set up the, this economy, because we've done so well on the, on the world scale with it, because we've been rich. And a lot of the reasons we've been rich has not been necessarily purely capitalism. It's about wars and things like that. But it's easy to buy into that work ethic, that, that, that puritanical work ethic where, like, this is important. You get what you deserve and people do have less. But even people who kind of agree, disagree with that, rather, who, who say, no, the, not everyone who has a bunch of money deserves it, not everyone who's poor deserves it, it still sounds kind of weird to be like, we can give everyone that money because the way things are set up, there has to be this sense of scarcity always. You talk about 5% employment being full employment. Yeah, of course it's not. That's a sense of labeling something as, it, like, making it more scarce. You need that that uh, that fear of being unemployed yep. to make things feel like it's you, you're lucky to have a job and that kind of aspect. But also, you need to, the way things are set up, you don't realize the statistics on agriculture. You don't realize how much food is wasted in this country. You don't realize we could so freaking easily feed everyone in this country. And and there are, uh, gosh, what, what country was I just reading that was proposing the idea? There's a European country that was talking about, um, they're actually talking about doing this on some level, making oh, sure yeah. everyone has food. Not geared, well, not a step in that direction. It was it was specifically about food. Oh. Either making sure everyone had uh, access to food or access to um, low price food, and uh, and I was like, well, okay, but yeah, you just get this feeling. It's like rolled into the very fabric of this cloth that we live in that things are scarce. That you have to mark up that you know things cost money and it's hard to get them. And I, I like it, but it's it, it is a sham. It's a little bit of a, of a theater we have to do to keep us wanting to buy shit and make and and keep staying our job. Well, well, I think one of the interesting parts to me is I I think at least in the short term there's still plenty of work that can be done and should be done. Mm -hmm. the, the the interesting contradiction now is. The, I mean, I guess there's a few of them, but like, one thing is, we're, we have to, the, the idea that manufacturing jobs are coming back, to me, stems from an intense nostalgia of what the U.S. used to be. Which is the same intense nostalgia that 16 years ago, or however much it was, was, yeah, it must have been 16 years ago that the Bush Gore, uh, campaign was all about in the debate about the farm subsidy and how much the farm subsidy was, even though it didn't apply to most people. I think that's basically the same now. It's like that there are more people in engaged in manufacture. I looked at the Bureau of Labor Statistics the other day of the breakdown of the workforce. I think it's like 9% of people are engaged in manufacture of the workforce, that is. The 12, if you include construction in that, which I don't know, maybe you should, maybe not. But I think that number is just going to shrink, and and I I think the whole bring these jobs back stems from a, a identity crisis that's happening, where what the way you define who you were, and you know that there's a whole bunch of not just who you are, but what your worth is as, as a human, who you are as your gender is is really wrapped up in this. Like well, a lot of men's conception of what it means to be a man 
is tied up in having a good paying job that is in like manufacturer or some other manly field. Mm-hmm. But it's like, you know what, that's not the way of the future in part, you know, it might be, you know, maybe this is me being a big city insensitive guy, but it's like part of it, it has to also be like a a move from nostalgia to the future too. Um, Because I do think there's a lot of stuff that needs to be done, right? Like there's not that great of childcare in this country and uh, the, and elder care at the same time. Like, there's a bunch of stuff that we could do, that we probably should do, that we're not doing. And we're instead engaged in just ridiculous activities. I mean, this is, when I was mentioning contradictions, this is one of the major things, is the way we decide how to divvy out jobs, what jobs get created, what jobs don't get created, is totally based on the market and what will produce money. And, you know, for a society, that might not be a great idea. You know, it might have worked well earlier in capitalism, and by well, I mean along with all of the horrors that industrial capitalism brought. But you know, it, that was an. I'm going to stand by that that was an improvement upon feudalism. I'm going to be Marxist in that sense that it was a step forward. But for example, there are people, you know, people I know who are employed in. Uh, being on a phone where on the other end someone has called to try to cancel their credit card, probably because they really need to cancel their credit card because, you know, they haven't developed the skills to, you know, like, uh, not spend too much or whatever. You know, if someone's canceling their credit card, I, I think you shouldn't put up a lot of barriers to that. And that's, I think there's, a, you know, I was raised Catholic, so I, I might have a moral, you know, objection to it at this point. Too, but it, I, you know, that person's job. We employ people. We pay people a wage to argue with you on the phone to try to get you to keep your credit card when you're trying to cancel it. That's a job that the market has decided is a worthwhile expenditure of cash because it makes somebody more money. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, that's that's a point where if you want to argue that capitalism is efficient, you got to own up to that one because. The, the idea that we we wouldn't provide quality learning environments for young people because their parents don't have enough money like this is this is the mind of a person that will live maybe for a hundred years who could be extremely productive or not that productive but you know it all depends on you know their the development of their skills and their development as a human being and if if their parents don't have money for good daycare then they they may miss out on you know, essential development in those young childhood years. You're telling me that it's more efficient to let that happen and to have someone instead convince people that they should keep their credit card? I'm happy to have that argument with you. Bring it on. That's really well put. Here's something very odd about, though, I'm going to go back to my economic stuff and go, here's something weird I learned this semester. Adam Smith, father of capitalism and law champion of laissez-faire believed that if there was a great public service that could be provided a great social good but it was not affordable for companies to do it that the government should step in and do it adam smith the father of laissez-faire capitalism believed that the government should be providing 
healthcare if it's not affordable, or you know, if, well, I guess healthcare is something like that. But like schools, he believed publicly. He believed in publicly funded schools. He probably would be one hundred percent behind public childcare and stuff like that. Like the weird thing is, like these are like even the people who originally championed all this free market stuff and the efficiency of the market still ironically recognize that the market was woefully uh, ineffective for a lot of socially good things. Because, I mean, Smith really was looking about production of goods. You know, this fits in well with something that I've been thinking about more and more. You guys might find this interesting. There is a stance where um, socialism is viewed as not a rebellion against uh, capitalism so much as it is the final step in the Enlightenment. So you have the moving out of the feudalist system, the embrace of science and democracy and, you know, the free market stuff came with that. But in many ways, I'm, I'm becoming more and more convinced that socialism is actually the full development, the realization of what the Enlightenment represented. And, I mean, part of it is I'm, I'm getting more into the French Revolution right now. I'm, I've always been kind of interested by it, but I'm reading about it now. I'm going to be going to France in, I don't know, six months or something like that. So that's part of it, is I want to know my stuff when I show up there and start looking at the Bastille. Anyway, if you look at the stuff like that, the stuff that's written in the, the uh, Declaration of Human Rights and, and the, the, the stuff Thomas Jefferson wrote and the stuff from the French Revolution... The ideals of what really I think is the foundation of socialism are in there. You know, there's a strong argument to be made that Marx was highly influenced by the French Revolution. You know, Jefferson wrote that all men are created equal when he owned um, at least a hundred slaves. You know, so the to me, what was happening in the early days of the Enlightenment is that thought was way far ahead of material reality. That, that people could project their thought into the future and think, what should it be? What is the correct thing? Even if they weren't ready to give it up themselves. Even though Jefferson looked around and said, no, but this, this manner and all this free labor is pretty sweet. I'm not, I'm not giving that up. But, but he knew in his heart that it was wrong and, could, and when he had to write something down that he thought might be viewed you know, for centuries to come, he could put the right thing on paper. To me, that means that Socialism was there from the beginning, from in, in what we call the Enlightenment. And the idea, I mean, this is something that, so, that socialists have done for a long time, is say, you know, we all believe in democracy in the political arena. Why don't we do it in the economic arena as well? I mean, I think that's just such a logical jump. And that idea of democracy in the political arena was a big part of the Enlightenment. I think, I think socialism, to me is the realization of that inherent contradiction of not having economic uh, democracy when when you have political democracy. Yeah, no, I, I totally think you're right. Like, the, the French the French Revolution, I mean, was the, the slogan for that, Liberté, Egal, Egal, <clears throat> my French isn't good, Liberté, Liberty, Equality, and Brotherhood, or I would say nowadays, like, all you have to do to switch that to, um, like, I guess, modern socialism, freedom, equality, and solidarity. Yep. Like, there we go. That's a, that's a, 
And I think the freedom thing is kind of interesting because people generally view socialism and communism as anti-freedom because you get these weird post-apocalyptic things of everybody and everything must be equality means complete uniformity, which is ridiculous. Um, although from, you know, how things were shaped with the Communist Party through Stalin and stuff, I, I can see where they get that from, too, uh, historically. But, like, I, I think that's a weird one that still persists. Like, like you somehow must burn your individuality in order to help other people. <laughs> like, I, I would think that's weird. But, yeah, no, I totally agree. And I do think that I have heard people assert that, yeah, that's exactly where Marx was coming from, is he looked at the French Revolution and basically the revolution of capitalism and went, well, why didn't that promise liberté, égalité, and fraternity? And he went, well, how can we do this based upon what they did create? So, yeah, I I agree with that. And I think that's probably where he's coming from. I like how you brought up freedom. When I was a young person, I was very much kind of into the idea of freedom, right? I think it makes sense as, as, as a rebellious teenager to want to, you know, investigate the idea of freedom and what does freedom mean. I, so I've always viewed socialism as a type of freedom, right? Not not Stalinism, right? That's the opposite of freedom. But the, if you're going to talk about freedom, you need to have certain things, right? If if you're starving to death, you don't really have freedom, right? And if if you can only be employed at certain places, you don't really have freedom. The if 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 you're you know controlled by the these outside forces like the market, that is a, a, a kind of lack of freedom. So I, I, I've always seen socialism as a way to give people the power to have the freedom to control their own lives. And I think that's the right way to look at it. If there are only two political parties to vote for, you lack freedom. <laughs> Marxism Today is created by Red Wagner and Tony Schmidt and is a project of the Democratic Socialists of America, Madison, Wisconsin chapter. We are not official spokespeople of the DSA and the views expressed in this podcast are our own. You can find us on Twitter at Red Wagner 2, that's the number 2, and Schmidt AJ, that's S-C-H-M-I-T-T-A-J. Our episodes are all available for download on our blog, marxismtodaypodcast.wordpress.com. You can share your thoughts about this episode and others on our subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash marxismtoday. Also, you can find information about the Democratic Socialists of America Madison chapter on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash dsamadison. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.